Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I often told you before and now, tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destructions, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to be here with you this Sunday. We're going to continue our sermon series in the book of Philippians. Let me move some things out of the way here. Now, you'll recall, if you were here last week, you'll recall that Sonny preached on chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And in those verses, we saw that Paul was really laying out for us a little bit of his past history. Sorry, let me get this mic right. Uh, He went to great lengths, actually, to show us his thoughts regarding his own righteousness. And we saw in those verses that Paul said, If anyone else thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I have more. I have an impeccable pedigree. He went on to say, I belong to the covenant people of God, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was circumcised on the eighth day from the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Pharisee, a persecutor of the church, and blameless under the law. Paul continued and said, whatever gain I had, I now count these things as lost compared to knowing Christ. Paul means that everything that he considered dear to him, everything of value to him, his ethnicity, his nationality, his religion, his good works, they have no value for him now in God's economy, no value towards his salvation. Because Paul understood and grasped that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. What he had trusted in, he now has thrown out to gain Christ to gain the righteousness of Christ that comes only through faith. Of course, Paul is talking about how we are made holy and right before God, right? In verses 3 through, three through 9, he's dealing really with our justification. And Paul says, we are justified before God, not because of our works, but because of Christ. When we put our faith in Jesus, we receive his righteousness. And it's that righteousness That allows us to stand before the presence of a holy God. And I want to make that clear. This first half of chapter 3 is all about our justification. right? We do not save ourselves. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. right? It's all a work of God. We receive the righteousness of Christ through putting our faith in Him. And what do we get in exchange for that? It's called the great exchange. We receive His righteousness. Christ receives our sin. And because of that, Because if we put our faith in him and receive the righteousness of Christ, we can stand before our mighty God declared holy and righteous because of our union with Jesus Christ. So I want us to understand that. That's the first half 
of chapter 3. The bottom line here is that Paul longed for and desired above all things to walk and abide in Jesus. This, he, Jesus was really the center of his life. Jesus drove Paul's life. Jesus, Paul found true meaning and complete meaning simply in following Jesus and nothing else. In verses 13 through 16, the section we're going to look at today, 12 through 16 actually, Paul returns to using this imagery of a race to describe what it means to live the Christian life. He wants to help us understand that the Christian life is not passive or inactive. So he keeps coming back to this imagery of running a race or of a runner to show us that we, might that we must engage our body and our minds in pursuing after Jesus. You know, probably the greatest movie made about running, if you're my age at least, is Chariots of Fire. And I may have mentioned this before, I'm not sure, but I'm going to mention it again. It was a classic movie in the 1980s, and it depicted the life of Eric Lytle, or Little, who was a sprinter for the United Kingdom um, in their 1924 Olympics. He was a very strong believer who grew up in Scottish Presbyterian, and he was strongly committed to honoring God by keeping the Sabbath. This meant that Eric was not willing to train, to run, to race on Sundays. That he, but he had spent years and years of strenuous training and was by now, by before 1924, he was the record holder in the 100-yard dash at that time. When the Olympics finally rolled around, he found out that the final for the 100-yard dash would fall on Sunday. And so he agonized over what to do, and ultimately he chose not to run in the 100-yard dash. There were, you know, there's the preliminaries until you get to the final. So he chose not to run in the 100-yard dash because if he made it to the finals, he would not compete. Now, he agonized over this because he loved his teammates. He loved his country, and he wanted to honor them. But in, but in actuality, what had higher and greater importance for him, and hopefully for us, is that he wanted to honor God above even his teammates even his country. So he chose not to run. But instead, what he did is he entered into another race, the 400, uh, I think it was called the 400 meter dash then, or maybe 400 yard dash. Um, now you have to understand, he had not trained for this race. Uh, it was not a race that he normally ran. He usually ran in 100 and in a 200 race, and that was it. So in the 1924 Olympics, he, ran in, he won a bronze medal in a 200, and he went ahead and he entered into the 400 because he could compete in that race for the United Kingdom because it didn't fall on a Sunday. As he was prepping and preparing to run this race, his coach came up to him and gave him a verse from, sec, uh, a verse from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30, that, said, that read, Those who honor me, I will honor. You know, of course, if you know the story or you've heard me say it before of someone else, we know what happened, right? He went on not only to win this race, but to set the world record in the 400-yard dash. Now, think about it. This is a man who wasn't training for this race, but somehow or another walked out into this race with a few weeks training and set the world record in the, in the 400. It's pretty amazing. He trained his whole life to accomplish a feat like this. For years and years, he practiced, he ran, he trained, he did disciplined his body to gain the victory, to gain the prize. Later on in life, a number of years later, someone asked him how he ran the 400 so quickly. And he said, I ran the first 200 meters as fast as I could. Then for the second 200, with God's help, I ran harder. What a great description of the way God works in our sanctification. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, Paul says, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
This is what Paul is saying to us as well. Church, we are in a race, but are we committed to running it well through the strength and power of God? Paul begins this section in verse 12 by correcting a possible misunderstanding uh, that the, he was worried the Philippian church might have. In verse 12 he says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul seemed to think that some, maybe the Judaizers that Sonny mentioned last week or some other group, could skew his words in verse 10 and 11 to mean that he thought he was perfect. That is, Paul was worried that some in, some in the church or the, had bought into this idea that Paul was perfect, that he was sinless, or that he at least um, was not sinning at the moment. Remember, in the beginning of this chapter, uh, Paul addressed some false teachers and some false teaching that was impacting this church. And these were probably Judaizers, as Sonny mentioned last week, who wanted the Philippian church to believe Paul's teaching about Jesus the Messiah, that the Judaizers did believe that Jesus was the Messiah. That's good, great, we can go along with that. But they also wanted people to strive by keeping the law of Moses, especially the ceremonial law, the ritual law. These false teachers taught that that the way to be complete, the way to be mature, was to believe in Jesus and then add to that the ceremonial aspects of the law, particularly circumcision and the food laws of the Old Testament. Like, they didn't understand that the Old Testament ceremonial laws pointed to Christ and were fulfilled by Christ. And therefore, because Christ fulfilled those laws, they had been abrogated. They'd done away with. They no longer applied to, to Christians today. That's why we as a church don't follow what decide what we eat or not eat, right? That's why we're not circumcised. We actually believe and teach that circumcision was replaced um, by baptism. We know that there were groups of people in the church and outside the church in the first century that taught a form of perfectionism. Many Jews like Paul, like Paul before he knew Christ, saw themselves as blameless before the law of God. There were others in the first century who taught a person could live without sinning. The Apostle John specifically wrote about this and, taught and went on to say in 1 John 1, there he said, if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Again, there were people within the church and around the church who were teaching that it was possible to live without sin or at least possible in some way not to sin. Now look, sincere believers throughout history throughout church history, have occasionally taught and believed that Christians can eventually get to a place where they effectively live without any known sin. You know, we love to sing the songs of John Wesley, the hymns of John Wesley, who was by all accounts a strong, wonderful man of God. And yet, by the end of his life, he believed and taught that a Christian could be perfect, that is, free from known sin. Now, I understand that most of us in this room would not fall into this category or belief system. Most of us understand that we sin on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, daily, hourly. Uh, we know it because we are impacted by it, and we even know it better because our wives, our friends, our husbands, our children are impacted by it. So if you really think you're perfection, that you're, you've got to this place of perfection, um, please come and talk to somebody who knows you well, and let's see what they have to say. Um, I don't think they would probably agree with you. But however, my fear is, or my worry is, is that we may fall into an opposite error, an opposite error. That is of spiritual complacency, 
we shrug our shoulders at our daily sins. We accept that sin is just part of life, and we seem to be okay with it. We tend to almost justify our sinful patterns or ways. We say things, and again, I know this is, some of this is culturally, within our culture, within church culture, but we, we tend to say things like, we all sin, or that there's no judgment in Jesus. That's one of my favorites. Or my personal favorite, we're all just human. Thank you. I think we all know that as well. I think sometimes we forget how awful sin is to our holy God. Too often, we see sin only in relationship to one another, and not what it truly is, not what it really is, which is sin against the majesty and the glory of God Almighty. We tend to forget in the midst of our struggles that God's will for our lives is to be holy. Jesus says we are to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Even when we fall short of that mark, we're not to give up and just accept it. We're exhorted throughout the New Testament. We are exhorted to continue to pursue Christ and holiness. Look, God is progressively changing us and molding us to be more and more like Jesus. His sanctification process will not end until we're face to face with Christ. This shouldn't discourage us. Rather, it should give us a certain, an absolute certain hope because we are still a work in progress. And God is still working on us. You're struggling with sin? Don't give up. Know that God, through Christ, is still working on you to grow you more and more into his son. This is exactly why Paul uses this metaphor of a race to show us the method of striving toward Jesus, the method of striving towards holiness. In verse 12 and 14, Paul uses the same word two times to stress our need to run this race well. He says, I press on to make it my own. And then in verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This verb to press on has a number of meanings as words often do. But this same Greek word is used in verse 6 to mean persecute. So if you look in chapter 3, verse 6, it's, it's translated there as persecute. It has, it has the meaning of to chase after, to pursue. In verse 6, Paul says, I am literally pursuing, chasing after the church of Christ to put it to death. This was Saul in his old days. While in verses 12 and 14, he says, I am pursuing, I'm chasing after, I'm pressing toward one goal and one goal only. And what's that goal? What's the prize? It's knowing Christ and his resurrection. It's what Paul had spoken about in verses 10 and 11. It's knowing Christ and his resurrection. Paul is striving with all his heart, with all his mind, with all his soul to seize the prize because Christ has already seized Paul. Christ Jesus has already made Paul his own. I don't, it's important that you don't miss this. Paul entered this race some 30 years before. He met, if you go to Acts 9, he met Christ on the road to Damascus. He's going actually to Damascus to persecute the church, going with papers from the Jewish authorities to persecute the Christians in Damascus. And Jesus meets him on the road and totally transforms Paul's world. So speaks out to Paul, Jesus speaks out to Paul in a voice and says, why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, Lord, who are you? And Jesus answers back, I'm Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? Paul had already entered this race. He was growing in his sanctification. That's why he could look back at his past life and say, I can count all this as loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. 
Paul became Jesus' chosen instrument to carry the name of Christ to kings, to the Gentiles, and to his own people. And because Paul had been claimed by Christ, he could long for and look forward to the prize awaiting him, knowing that God would strengthen him and help him to complete this race. Church, we're to press on to know Christ and his resurrection. We are to press on to know Christ and his resurrection. Part of that pressing on means cultivating, as Legan Duncan says, it means cultivating a holy dissatisfaction with our present state of growth. It's realizing that we have not yet reached maturity. And the closest any of us will get to perfection in this life is to say that they have not reached the finish line, but keep running toward the goal. And church, that's what we are called to do, to keep running toward the goal, to keep running towards Christ, to keep running towards holiness in Christ. Paul continues this race analogy by really with a laser-like focus. He says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, he presses on toward the goal. If you're running a race, the worst thing you can do is look back. Because if you look back, what's going to happen? You're going to stumble. You're going to fall. Looking back will hinder you and cause you to fall. And we know exactly what Paul meant by, by when he says, what lies behind me? It was, it was what he identifies in verses three, 4 through 6. It was his old way of life, of self-reliance and confidence in the flesh. When it comes to the past, we need to be like Paul and be forgetful. But being forgetful didn't mean that Paul erased his past completely from his memory, as we saw in the beginning of chapter 3. It, he, it, his past just didn't occupy his attention or focus any longer. It didn't reign over him. It didn't have any sway over him because he now rested securely in Jesus. John MacArthur says, who's a pastor, says, Paul made a break with everything in the past, both good and bad. Religious achievements, virtuous deeds, great successes in ministry, as well as sins, missed opportunities, and disasters must all be forgotten. They do not control the present or the future. Believers cannot live on past victories, nor should they be debilitated by the guilt of past sins. He goes on to say that churches are full of spiritual weaklings, paralyzed by grudges, bitterness, sins, and tragedies of the past. Others try to survive in the present by reliving past victories or past successes. They must break with the past, MacArthur says, they must break with that past if they are to pursue the spiritual prize. God is interested in what believers do now and in the future. No one, no one declared Jesus after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. We can and should be grateful for God's past and present mercies and graces at work in our life. But we are to fix our eyes ahead on the prize and strain forward for, to greater Christ-likeness. And Paul is not looking back, but he is straining forward. The Greek here has this idea of a runner with every muscle straining, with all his energy and strength, stretching out in full sprint, leaning forward to the finish line. Silva, a Bible commentator, says Paul is in hot pursuit after the prize. He's not running aimlessly. He has a goal in mind, and nothing will prevent him from reaching that goal, from reaching that goal. Paul ran with a purpose. What about us? What about us? Do we run with that same purpose? 
Or do we run aimlessly looking back, focused on the other runners? Are we passionately pursuing after Christ by looking ahead to the finish line, to the goal? As one commentator has said, we should direct our aspirations, our imaginations, our time, our energy, our money toward the precious prize of knowing Christ more fully. Set your gaze on the goal. Run with the power and strength that Christ will give you. When you stumble and fall, pick yourself up, brush yourself off, and get back in the race of pursuing Christ with your whole being. You know, as we press forward in this race of knowing Christ and his resurrection, Paul reminds us that we cannot achieve this prize by commitment alone. In verse 17, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. You know, Paul, throughout the New Testament, he often tells us to follow others. Very specifically, he usually says, follow me as I follow Christ. Here he says, follow me and Timothy and possibly Epaphroditus, who are good examples of mature believers who have put the interests of others before their own interest. Remember, Paul's not perfect. Like you and me, he's fighting the good fight. He's fighting against sin, personal struggles, doubts, and fears. But he says, look, Christian, you need to find examples of people who have set their minds on Christ, not on earthly things. As we press on, as we strain forward in this race, it's important, it's very important, that we look for good examples of godliness and spiritual maturity that we can follow after. We should look for ways to follow and learn from our more mature brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, I can think back to my early years in the faith, and the man I most wanted to emulate was my disciple leader. This was while I was at the university. He loved Christ and he loved people well. He was always ready to share the gospel. And he was and is one of the most humble and gentle men that I've ever met. If you don't have mature, godly believers speaking into your life, people who can encourage you, people you can observe and emulate, then you're going to struggle to run this race well. That's what Paul is saying here. Without help, we're going to struggle in running this race. This is why I believe our community groups that are going to be starting up, I'll put a little plug here, starting up in September. This is why these community groups are so important for us to be engaged with, to be involved with. In our groups, we can strive together to know Christ more deeply and more fully. You know, I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again. We are not meant to run this race alone. We're meant to be in community together with one another. If you're here only on Sundays, that's the only time you have any kind of Christian community, brothers and sisters, let me tell you, you're not going to be running well. Because an hour here on Sunday mornings isn't enough to fuel your, to fuel your soul with Jesus. It's not enough. You know, over the centuries, many have tried to paint the spiritual life as being carried along by God, passive and surrendered to his will and his spirit. The problem is that the Bible never tells us to let go and let God, not even once. To the contrary, the Apostle Paul tells us to press on with all our strength into maturity into holiness, to press on, to continue to press on, to press on when you fail, when you struggle, to press on. Because only as we press on through the Spirit will we meet, will we make it to that finish line. Growing in holiness is something we must work at. And because we must work at it, it's very easy to fall. 
back into our old patterns of self-reliance and confidence in our own strength to run this race. Right? It's, it's very natural for all of us, if you've been walking with Christ long enough, to think somehow or another that my, it's my strength, it's what I'm doing that's growing me in holiness. But that misses the perspective of what Paul is saying here. It's not our strength. It's Christ at work in us as we pursue him. It's the spirit at work in us as we pursue him to grow into holiness, to grow into maturity. You know, it's easy for us to think that our efforts, our own use of the disciplines of grace is what brings us growth. Please hear me. I'm not downplaying the means of grace. They are the tools God gives to grow us into holiness and maturity. Praying, fasting, worship, God's word are vital to us in running the race. But apart from the Spirit, they have no power to bring growth to bring us to the finish line. Yes, so of course, be diligent, but always look to God and to His grace to bring us to maturity. Practice those disciplines. Do those disciplines. Work them out in your lives, but rely. Remember, it's only through the work of the Spirit that growth and maturity is going to come. It's not because you're being diligent. It's not because you're being faithful. Those are great things. Do those. Don't minimize them, but it's the work of the Spirit in you that's going to bring growth in your life. Think about it when Jesus, or Paul says, I think it's in Corinthians, you know, some plant the seeds, uh, some harvest the seeds, but who's doing the growth of the seeds? Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Only God brings the growth. That's the same idea in our Christian life. We use the means of grace, and then God then brings the growth in our life. We, We study the scriptures, we pray, and we grow in holiness not because we prayed, not because we're using the Word of God, but because God has taken what we're doing and growing us into maturity and to holiness through it. And now I'm really off my notes here. So, <laughs> Look, so you're either running this, this race well or you're poorly running the race. But I think it's important to remember you're still in the race. We're still in the process, which means we do not all grow and mature at the same time. Or in some places, you know, we don't all have to come to the same convictions or even the same attitudes because we're in this race and some of us are a little bit further. Some of us are a little more mature. And that's okay. We still need to have patience with one another when there are differences of maturity because Christ himself has patience with us in the areas where we are immature. So let me encourage you to keep your eyes on Christ and run after him. For the Christian life is a race, and God has promised to enable us to run it well. Now, I know there are some here today who have yet to enter the race. Maybe you are like Saul in his early days, still hanging on to your pedigree, thinking that you grew up in church and that's going to be enough, or that your parents went to church and somehow you'll be okay. Maybe you're even a good person, you're morally upright, you're kind, you're helpful, uh, you do all kinds of good things. You follow the laws of the land. But just like Paul, we can't rest on our pedigree or our good works to justify us before God. So here's the thing. I don't know where you are, but if you're not in Christ and you are hoping to hang on to something from your past that somehow or another is going to make you cross the finish line and you're going to stand before God holy and enter into his kingdom, apart from Christ, you're sadly mistaken. You're sadly mistaken. It's only through Christ, it's only through his righteousness that we can cross the finish line fully and completely. And so if you haven't had Christ in your life, if you haven't come and bowed a knee before him, let me encourage you to do that. Come and confess your sins to him. Come and and acknowledge him as your Lord. 
receive his forgiveness, and then join with us in the race. Join with us in growing in holiness, growing in Christ-likeness. And then we can come as a body together and cross the finish line together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your rich and precious word. By your spirit, bring this truth to bear deep, deep into our being and cause it to overflow from our hearts and all through our actions and lives. May you be honored in the way that we run as we trust in your spirit and your word to bring us to maturity, to bring us to holiness, to bring us to the finish line. Through your power and your strength, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.